All right, I'd like you to turn uh, in your Bibles this morning, if you have Bibles otherwise, uh, on your devices. So Colossians chapter 4, that's where we're at this, uh, this morning, Colossians chapter 4, and we um, are going to read just a relatively uh, brief but rather compact uh, passage of the Scripture, uh, Colossians chapter 4, verses uh, 2 through 6. Had the opportunity um, last week when Joy and I were in Seattle visiting um, our, our son and daughter-in-law, we were um, in the midsection of Seattle worshiping um, at a uh, PCA church that they attend and um, where thankfully my son is now serving as a deacon. That's kind of neat to see that and his involvement there. And it was just a reminder to us that, you know, every Sunday morning across this nation, indeed throughout the world, the gospel is going out um, in some way in very different um, cultural contexts. But no matter the cultural context or what city or what town you live in, you know, people are people. Sin is sin. Um, people are in need of forgiveness. People are in need of the gospel. And that's why we're going through this series that we are on evangelism. Um, up to this point, if you remember about three weeks ago, we considered what exactly evangelism is from the ministry of Jesus. Two weeks ago, we looked at some of the challenges of evangelism from the very, um, you know, informative uh, book, an insightful book, the book of Romans, particularly from Romans chapter 1. And now we're going to be considering uh, what I would call three primary or component parts of evangelism. We need all three together for effective evangelism. And we see that now from this text from the book of Colossians. So let's draw attention now to our scripture, Colossians chapter 4, beginning at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And finally this, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Who is writing this? The Apostle Paul. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First thing he mentions is prayer. We're going to get to that in just a moment. What's very fascinating about this is the Apostle Paul's heart for the gospel and to get the gospel out. And did you notice this? Did you notice where he was writing this? He's writing it from prison. He's in prison now. And yet he's concerned about the gospel. He's concerned about spreading the gospel. Even, even the indication is that, that he wants the, the, the good news of Jesus to go out those within the prison system. And so that's why he prays. He says, pray for me too, not only for yourselves, but pray for me that I may make it clear how I ought to speak. Now this is a man who's very intelligent. This is a man who was formally trained under, under, well, when he was in Judaism, or a man named Gamaliel a very well-known scholar. Paul was no dummy. I mean, he knew his theology, and he knew his Christian theology when he converted out of Judaism, and yet he's still saying, you know, I don't have it all together. I need your prayers for an open door. Again, we'll look at that in just a moment, but I want to draw your attention to this very fact at the very outset that this morning, what we're going to do is we are going to look at what I call three component parts or three main ingredients of what we call effective, or maybe a better word would be fruitful evangelism three ingredients. 
Usually when you and I hear the word ingredients, we think of food. We think of baking, cooking, and I know some of you do very well at that. You're good bakers, you know how to cook well. I don't, I don't know anything about baking or cooking, but I do know this, that if I Google cake, I understand there's three main ingredients to the cake. Eggs, sugar, and flour. You remove one of those ingredients and you have less an effective cake. But you have all three, with other things, of course, you make a very effective cake, very beautiful and a very tasty cake. Same thing with evangelism, very simple carryover there, that there are three main component parts of evangelism, and we gather them from the text, which makes kind of a nice three-point sermon, I guess, this morning. Those three main component parts are this, prayer, speaking, acting. How simple is that? Now, there's more to it than that. We're going to dig into that, but those three are the main component parts of evangelism, prayer, Speaking, acting. You take away one of those, you have less than effective evangelism. You put three together in faith. And when the gospel goes out, God brings fruit to it. We're going to see how he does that through us. Okay? Notice what the Apostle Paul says, verses 2 through 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, he's not talking about anything related to mission or evangelism. He just says, generally speaking, we as a church, every church should be a church devoted steadfastly, continually to prayer. But he adds something else, as I noted just a moment ago. At the same time, pray also for us, for the apostles, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. The first thing he says is that we are to be a praying people. Prayers that are determined, prayers that are continual, prayers that are committed, prayers that are confident that when we pray, the Lord not only hears, but the Lord answers, because we pray not on the basis of our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. Prayer is a powerful thing. And what prayer does in evangelism is it reminds us just how absolutely dependent we are upon God for fruit in the evangelistic task. Now, I'm assuming that for a large majority of us this morning, that is not a theological truth or a doctrinal truth that we go, oh, well, you know, I never really knew that, never really thought about that. Now, we hear about that upon occasion. The question is, how often do we really grasp that in our minds and our hearts? How often do we do it. Prayer shows our dependence upon the Lord for the fruit of evangelism. Remember about three weeks ago, we looked at the ministry of Jesus when we addressed the question, just what is evangelism? And at one point, I'm not going to get into the whole rehearsal of that sermon, but at one point, remember, Jesus spoke these words, and they're well-known words. The harvest is plentiful, he says, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he may send forth workers. In other words, to gather in the harvest. Now, it's very interesting. Jesus says, we need to pray for workers, that God would raise up people in the pew and God would raise up leaders in the church to bring in the harvest of souls, if you will, because people need the gospel today, right? So to, 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 to pray diligently, very much so for that. But it's very interesting that while we pray, we are not the Lord of the harvest. Remember, Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Jesus is the Lord. 
God is the Lord. We're not the Lord. And we're not ultimately, though we're instruments, we're not ultimately the ones who bring in the harvest. It's the Lord who does this. Jesus reminds us very simply of that in the passage. It's kind of interesting that when you uh, search the scriptures, particularly in the book of Acts, where we read about the rapid expansion of the church, it's very interesting that when you look at Christians gathering together in the early church, they were very committed to prayer. And it's very interesting that every time they committed to prayer, the Lord did something redemptively in their context. And the Lord brought in many people to the faith. So we read how the church would pray, and then we read how the Lord would open doors for the gospel. The church would pray, and then we read about a woman named Lydia, who the Lord opened up her heart to respond to the gospel. The people of the early church would pray, and we read things like, and the Lord was adding to their number daily, those who were being saved. The church would pray, and the number of disciples grew. We, just, we find these kinds of phrases all throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. The point is, prayer is a privilege, and prayer is a very important thing that we can't forget. So with that in mind, moving on, how often, let me ask you this, how often do you pray for the lost? How often do you pray that God would provide you open doors? You know, um, it's a natural tendency in us, I think, over time to become rather self-absorbed in our prayers. We pray for ourselves. We pray, if you're married, you pray for your spouse, you pray for your kids, you pray... We pray for things in the church and these kinds of things. But I'm talking about prayers for people out there. Or how often in the ministries of this church do we mention the lost in our prayers? Pastors, elders, in our consistory meetings, how often do we pray for the lost? Or in our council meetings, which for those of you new, when we talk about the council, we talk about pastors, elders, and deacons together. In our monthly meetings, how often do we pray for the lost? Women, when you gather together, virtually, or together, you have women's Bible study, I'm assuming that you devote a certain amount of time to prayer. Do you mention the lost in prayer? By name, if you know them? Um, the, the children's ministries in this church, we call them gems and cadets. Leaders of gems and cadets, when you get those little girls together, when you get those young boys together, do you bring before their minds, and do you sow the seeds of of burden for the lost in your children, okay? Let them hear that, bring it to their attention. How often do we bring this out in congregational prayer? I need to be reminded of that, okay? When we do those things, you know, we're just not being relevant and being authentic, we're being biblical, it's the Apostle Paul talks about that here, right? Just things for us to be reminded about. All right, moving on. So we need to be a people who are devoted to prayer. It's what we call a form of pre-evangelism. Okay? happens before the evangelistic activity, prepares us for the evangelistic activity. But there's also the doing of evangelism. Okay? Take a look at verse 5, if you would. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Literally, it reads like this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, redeeming the time. So verse 5, you have two fundamental phrases. I want to deal with them now. First of all, it says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Um, 
the word walk, you'll find the word uh, walk, you find that frequently in the Old Testament. That's a carryover from the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew idiom that we call it. Uh, it has to do with not so much speaking or thinking, but doing. Talk about interactions, interactions. So when you walked toward outsiders, is in your interactions with outsiders, by the, word, by the way, when the Bible uses the term outsiders, talk about those outside the faith. Not those inside the faith, but those outside the faith. So really when it's saying walk in wisdom toward outsiders, it's talking about our approach in evangelism, an approach that should be what we call circumspect, that is deliberate and careful. So if you're going to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, here's some things to think about. First of all, we need to be prepared to do that. You know what I find in, in the ministry, you know, sometimes people talk about being afraid of the evangelistic task. I don't know. I don't, I don't find that. I find it's more people feel more unprepared. Not afraid of individuals outside faith, but unprepared. Like, what, what am I going to say? How am I supposed to act? How can I be winsome toward them? Right? And to, to, to walk in wisdom means that you need to understand the mind and the heart and the culture of those who are outside the faith. That's not an easy thing, and I'll tell you why. Because if you've had the privilege of growing up in the church, you've been taught to think a certain way, and you've been raised in an atmosphere to think and speak and do in a certain way, in a Christian way. So to peer in the minds of a heart of, an, uh, of a person outside of the Christian faith is very, very difficult. It's hard to identify with that, right? Um, also, it can happen um, in the church where not only if you're raised in faith, but let's say you've come out of unbelief. And let's say that's two or three years ago. You know what you find in the church is that the longer people are in the Christian faith and out of their former circle of unbelief, they take on the mind of Christ. They take on the mind of the church. And what they do is they leave behind the old relationships that they once had. They start developing new relationships among other Christians in the church. And before you know it, they're not really connecting with people like that from the past anymore. See? So there's all kinds of things going on. I don't know if we have to say, I have to feel guilty about it, but these are just natural things that happen if you're raised in the Christian faith or it's been a while since you've come out of um, unbelief, right? So it takes conscious effort to enter into the mind and the heart of those who are outside of Christ. It takes extra effort to understand and what we call exegete the culture um, around us so that we understand them, okay? Um, it also means that when we deal with those outside the faith, we just have to be open, we have to be receptive, not get uptight, just be natural with people. Just be natural with them. Um, be to them like Jesus, you know? It's not that hard. So, for instance, you look at Luke chapter 15, and the first couple of verses, very interesting. We read how you got tax gatherers and sinners, and, and people are living in a moral life, and people are outside the faith. And they would, not, they would not go to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives, but their hearts were cold. So what they would do, though, is that, it's very interesting, they would go to Jesus. Because what Jesus would do is he would deal naturally, open and receptively with them. So in the first verses of Luke chapter 15, we see how these sinners and immoral people are sitting down with Jesus, and Jesus is talking with them. Jesus is teaching them. Jesus is eating with them. There's a verb that's used there, prosdecomai, which, which 
usually is translated as Jesus received them, but it has the connotation of table fellowship. So Jesus is not just receiving them, he's sitting down, he's, he's hanging with them, as we would say today, answering their questions. He did not view them as projects, but it's just as people, people like you and me, people like you and me. There's more that could be said here. So we need to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, but there's one other phrase that's used here. Take a look at verse 5. It says, making the best use of our time with outsiders, or literally redeeming the time. Now, you see in verse 5 that the word time um, is used. In the New Testament, there are, there are two different words for time. Kronos and kairos. Kronos has to do with the passage of time. We talk about chronology, right? So one minute followed after another minute, another hour after another day after day, and so on. It's the sequence of time, Kronos. The word here is not Kronos, it's Kairos. Kairos is speaking about a specific period of time in which to act. And in the context here of evangelism, speaking the gospel and acting wisely, there's only a certain amount of time, oftentimes, that we're given to, to, to interact with people and to speak with people. And oftentimes, I have found by experience, it's a very narrow period of time. That you have to go, and you have to have, your, you have to have a sense of discernment, like, oh, that's the time that I'm going to use. And you never, oftentimes, you never know when that time's going to be. Okay? And here's the thing, we need to redeem the time and take advantage of that window of time because here's the thing, you may never have that time again. It was about, uh, I don't know, seven, eight years ago now where we dealt with this passage. And I remember telling this story, and there's newer people here, and I'm going to retell it, it's going to take just a couple of minutes, but it, it, it underscores the importance of redeeming the time. I told a story of a young man that um, Joy and I met when I was pastoring a church in Toronto, Ontario, my first pastorate. And it was Monday, it was the afternoon, and I, we, Joy and I said, yeah, let's go out for lunch. And so we went out for lunch, and we we're going out our driveway, and the drive was way next to a very busy uh, street, and we had big apartment complexes, like 20, 25 stories um, in front of us. And there was a bus stop there, and there's a young man sitting in front of the bus stop, and he was just he was on, you know, he's sitting on the bus stop, and he's like this, you know. And I'm looking over there, and I see him, and Joy sees him, and, and she says, she really talked to him. I said, yeah, okay. You know, so I parked the car by the side, and this, this young guy's name was Sean. He looked like he was about 18, 19 years old. And he had terrible complexion. He had blotches all over his face, and it wasn't, it wasn't bad acne. It was just, he, he was dealing with something, you know. And as I'm talking to him, and he, he was crying, he said, um, you know, I remember two things. He said, I'm, I have HIV, and he said, um, I have no money to get back down, downtown. That's where I live, and where we lived is outside of downtown. So I usually don't give money away, but to make a long story short, I said, you know, here's five, ten bucks, whatever. This will be enough to get you downtown. Once you get downtown, if I give you this money, please contact me so I know you got downtown okay. So I gave him the money. Off he went, and I soon forgot about it. Man of great faith, right? Man, he's not going to. It's not going to call, right? So he gets downtown about 10 o'clock at night. He calls me. I gave him my number. He said, hi, this is Sean. So we'll let you know I got downtown. Okay, thanks for the money to get me downtown there. He says, Sean, it's great talking to you. If you come in this area again, please let me know. And I don't care if it's 3 in the morning. You give me a call and we'll, we'll talk. He says, I, I think I would like that. Okay. So anyway, two or three days happen. And I forget. Shoot, I, I, I was going to take a, a newspaper with me because this has to do with what I'm going to say. So, 
Joy and I are watching TV one night, and we're watching a news program, and three people are shot in Toronto, which is a huge deal. Uh, Toronto is about three million people at the time, greater metro areas, uh, maybe a million or two more than that. It's a big, big city, okay? And I'm watching the, the, the news that night, and I just happen to look up, and then I look down, and I look up again, and the image of the three individuals that were shot and killed were the this went away, and something in me, I don't know if you've ever had this, but it was a certain sense, I didn't hear voices, but a very strong impression, you need to check this out. So the next morning I went to a corner store, and I bought a newspaper, this is before really the internet, that's how long ago, but anyway, and I went to the store, and I got the newspaper, and then they threw the three individuals, and there was Sean's face. Now, you know, I thought about, and, and he, was, he was involved in some illicit activity, which I really don't want to get into the details here, but, he was doing stuff out in that area. It wasn't drugs, but other stuff. And, um, you know, I, I, I never forgot that. And I, I remember saying to myself, next time I provided an opportunity, I don't care if the window's that short, I'm going to take it. Now, whether I've always done that, I don't know. But I always remember that. Redeem the time, because you don't know when you're going to get it. That's an unusual case. But there are usual cases for you and me. It may be a son or daughter. It may be a worker, it may be someone who's down, someone who's in a dark spot, who's, who happens to be at that time particularly open to the gospel. Okay? Take advantage of it. Don't be afraid. Take advantage of it. Okay? One final thing, we need to move on. Finally this, our text not only encourages us to pray continually and act wisely, but also to speak gracefully. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There's a part of that verse where you kind of go, yeah, I get it, and there's another part where like, I don't get it. First is we get it, speech is also to be gracious. So we need to pray continually, need to act wisely, and we need to speak gracefully, right? Not super deep theology. Speak gracefully. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting that we're called to act wisely toward outsiders. But here's the thing, acting never brought anyone to Jesus, okay? No, I about guarantee, nobody ever looked at your life and said, oh, you know, so and so, so holy. I think they're Christians. I think I'll believe in Jesus. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. You have to speak the gospel. Evangelism is primarily proclaiming the king and his kingdom, repentance, faith in Jesus, life in him. And notice here, it doesn't talk about, we'll get into this more next week. It says, let your speech always be gracious. It's not talking about the content of what we're to say. You should say this and this and this. No, um, it's talking more about the manner, the way in which we are to speak the gospel. We are to speak with graceful words, with kindness, with respect. Our text puts it this way. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Th to put it simply, we're to be salty Christians. Now, oftentimes when we say this about somebody, oh, that, that guy's really salty, we say he's really obnoxious, or he's really, uh, I don't know, he's, 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 he's cold, he's abrasive. That's what we mean by being salty. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. He said, when our speech is to be seasoned as it were salt, He's, he's talking about this. And let me preface it, what I'm going to say by this. Uh, back, I'll go back to Toronto one more time. 
and every once in a while we would get people who would come to our house in need, you know. And there was a guy who came, and he was, uh, was a particularly difficult time in the economy, and he used to be a chef. And so he just stayed with us for a while. I think, if I remember correctly, he cooked us a meal, right? And um, he said this. He said, if you really want to serve a winsome meal, use just a little more salt and a little more spice than necessary. Because what the salt will do is it will, and the spice will do is enhance the flavor and will whet the appetite for more. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here regarding the evangelistic task is when you speak to others, speak in such a way that you enhance the gospel, that you make it beautiful and winsome. And speak in such a way that as, as you're, you're talking to that person, you're drawing that person in, you're whetting the appetite for more. Where they go, I want to know more about this. This is interesting. Now, you're not always going to get that response, but by the grace of God and the sovereignty of God, sometimes you do. Praise God for that. So when, when you take the time to speak to others, and this, this gets at a central component of the church, what the church is all about, you know, we have to pray for open doors. When the open doors come, we need to act in such a way and speak in such a way that people are drawn. Is that, would you say that that characterizes me? Or, or you know what, I, I, need, I need some help in that. If you need help in that, that's okay. This is why we have this series, okay? And we'll look again more at kind of the details of, of how to do this next week and the content of it. One more thing before we end very quickly, and that is this. There are two f- um, fundamental extremes I have found that combat this very text in the life, our lives and the life of the church. One is neglect, that we don't always pray continually or act wisely or speak gracefully, or sometimes we can be aggressive. You ever meet someone who's really aggressive in evangelism? It's usually after they're recently converted, right? And you've, we've, many of us have heard of the cage stage, and they need to be put in a cage first, right, before they're let out in the world. Um, met an, had individuals, a, new, a man in Montreal, Francois. He was a wonder. He loved the Lord. But boy, could he get in people's faces. And he literally put them against the wall, practically. You know, he was that zealous. And praise God for zeal, but, but he turned some people away, unfortunately. But I think the main issue for Christians today is a matter of neglect not always noticing and not always taking care of the opportunity, you know. We, we as a church, and I'm always amazed at this, every week we get somebody new here. If you don't know them beforehand, you don't know their story, you don't know where they're coming from. Take advantage um, of those times. And here's the thing, the way, the way we embrace this text and the way that we keep away from aggressiveness on one hand and neglect on the other is by understanding God's grace in Christ in our own lives. So, so if, if, I, if, if I myself fall short in this way, and I keep outsiders from a distance, at a distance, or if I find the church moving in a direction where we fall into absolute neglect over time, because our natural predisposition is to self-absorption, or we get aggressive, what that tells me about myself or us is that it makes me wonder, do we really understand the gospel of grace? Because grace is not harsh. Grace is soft and beautiful. And the more we understand that, the more we appropriate that, the more we're able to minister to others. So the text this morning, not hard, not difficult, beautiful, effective, and it leaves us with this. Are we this kind of people? 
do we pray continually? Do we act wisely? Do we speak gracefully, not just to each other, but to those outside the faith? And are we willing to be used by the Lord as instruments in the Redeemer's hands? Okay? Let's think about these things. We'll approach more of this next week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a good God. And Lord, you are the God who throughout all these centuries have been gathering in your people from the nations, bringing them into the church, bringing them into the community of faith, bringing them in through the power of your word and spirit. And for this, we are thankful. That is a, it is a, it's a beautiful thing to see, O oh God. Um, Lord, may we see that here in the life of our own church, in the life of us as individuals. If anything, Father, as we go through the series on evangelism, Lord, continue to build in us a greater burden as you have given us a unique opportunity in this city to sow the seeds of the gospel in people, many of them who are needy, and some of them even thirsty for the deep truths of the word of God. So God, grant that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.